0: Good morning. That's where you say good morning. That's kind of what you do. Good morning. Hey, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke 22. Luke 22 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. And once you're to Luke 22, let's go ahead and stand up. All right, Luke 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, where is the guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, This, take this, and divide it amongst you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and he gave thanks, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after this supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, like Bria said, we are beginning a uh, three-week series on the body and blood of Christ and how the importance of this meal is going to change our church. We're in a season of change. I don't know if you can feel it. I had like three different people come up to me during worship and be like, can you feel it? This is a different Sunday. Something different is going on here. This is something, something, something's changing. And I have a very simple message to start this series this morning. Here's here's the point of my message. The blood changes everything. The blood changes everything. I want to start here with a simple question. Why blood? Why blood? You know, isn't it just like religion to be so bloody and so weird and just so intense? Well, you wouldn't be alone in thinking this. In fact, Jesus decides at one point in his ministry to tell a group of Jews to eat him and drink his blood. And here's the conversation that happens. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. The next section, it sounds kind of cool when, I, when you read it slowly, but the next section is titled, Many Disciples Desert Jesus. <laughs> <clears throat> and, and, and you know, the, the, rever- the, the revulsion to this makes sense, because they have a law that forbids the eating of any blood, let alone the cannibalism of a Jewish man. It's offensive. It was offensive then, and it still is offensive today. You know, I remember as I was a pastor in Portland for a number of years, and I remember uh, just the pressure of the city bearing down upon my shoulders, the pressure of the city's culture bearing down upon my mind, just saying, assimilate, stop being so weird, stop believing in the supernatural, just be normal. And I remember this pressure, and I so I, I began to, as a pastor, think, How do I assimilate to this culture? How do I like make the the gospel palatable to this culture. And I, try, I did it in so many different ways. Well, we could talk different. We could, we could speak about the scriptures different. You know, we could read their books. We could quote their poets. We could, we could contextualize a little bit better. And I could do it in all these different areas, but one area, communion. Because at the end of the day, as Christians, we still say, we eat a man's flesh and we drink his blood and we celebrate it. There's no assimilating that. There's no contextualizing that. But I would argue that this meal, communion, the blood of Jesus, is at the heart of the entire Christian faith. It is the heart of the gospel because it touches the deepest part of what it means to be human. See, every human, every one of us sitting in this room this morning, every one of us has this sneaking suspicion in the back of our minds that the The way that we feel about the wrong that we've done is more than a feeling. The way that we feel about the wrong that we've done might just be more than a feeling. That's actually what guilt is. Guilt is the feeling that what you feel about what you've done wrong is more than a feeling. That what you've done wrong simply isn't just like, Oh, I just need to like, you know, uh, the, the new, newest wellness trend is going to help me out. Or, or if I just eat better, or if I, if I hang out with my friends, I can kind of get rid of this, this feeling I have about the, the, the wrong that I've done. Guilt is, well, maybe it's more than a feeling. <laughs> maybe this isn't just a personal thing. Maybe this is a cosmic thing. Maybe I haven't just you know done something, I told a little lie there, or, you know, I, I fooled around here with this person while I'm married to this person, but they did it to me, and so you know what it? No, 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 no. It's the feeling that I've actually done something cosmic. I've participated in the vandalism of God's Shalom. You know what it is? That feeling? That feeling is the damned spot that Lady Macbeth saw on her hands. Do you know the play? You know, in in Macbeth, there's this sleepwalking scene where Lady Macbeth is is, um, walking around the castle at night. And it's right after she's killed King Duncan, she begins to rub her hands, making this kind of washing motion constantly throughout the night. And she sees that her hands are bloody, even though they're not. She says, all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. There's a doctor who's present. Her doctor asks, you know, What is it that she's doing now? Look how she's rubbing her hands. And her maid replies, you know, she sleepwalks and she just looks like she's washing her hands constantly. And then Lady Macbeth cries out, here's a spot, out damn spot, I say. She then says in her sleep, a little water clears us of the deed, but she's back the next night rubbing her hands. See, a water doesn't clear us of the deed, does it? What she discovered is what every human knows. Water isn't enough to take care of guilt. Water isn't enough to assuage the feelings of guilt. Sin is just that serious. Guilt is only removed by blood. It requires blood. Without blood, the scriptures say, there's no forgiveness. You guys know the story of Cain and Abel that, that Abel kills, or uh, Cain kills his brother Abel. And, it, and God says, his blood is crying out to me from the ground. The blood of Abel cries out over all humanity born into this world, guilty, guilty. And every person is going out, damn spot, out. But communion is the celebration that Jesus' blood is actually speaking a better word than the blood of Abel. That there's another blood, the blood of Jesus, that has the volume turned up higher than the blood of Abel. And here's my concern this morning. I want you to ask this question about your life. What does his blood do for me? What does his blood actually do for me? Think, Think about this for a moment. If your life was the only evidence of the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection, would anyone be convinced? Think about your life. If your life was the only evidence of the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection, would anybody be convinced? This isn't meant to shame, but it's intended to present an opportunity to lay hold of what is available through the blood of Jesus. See, most Christians, I think most of us in this room, we'd, we'd say, the blood of Jesus matters. We maybe would even go further than that. We would say, the blood of Jesus has changed my whole reality. But then most of us live lives where we don't, our lives don't reflect the heavenly reality that the blood of Jesus actually purchased. There's many Christians where their entire internal world is still a world of sin management. Your highs and your lows come from your actions and how you're doing, not from Jesus' actions. There's been no change in the way that this person sees themselves, even though they're they're covered by the blood of Christ. Their struggle throughout all of life, they think, disqualifies them from God's presence and from his power, and so they, they begin to, they stop looking for heaven to come and they redefine the Christian life as an exercise in long suffering instead of a fruitfulness. They begin to settle for the wisdom of man instead of the wisdom of God about what is possible in their life. And then eventually at some point, this Christian will look back on their life from middle age and wonder, where did the passion I once had go? Where did the dreams that I once had go? Oh. You know, imagine that somebody were to inherit you $10 million. That'd be pretty nice. Imagine somebody gives you $10 million, would it change your life? I think it would. I mean, just even think it maybe 10 million is too big of a number. Maybe just think about two million. You get two million dollars. You know exactly what you would do. You've probably thought about it. You're like, I would buy this home, I'd pay off this debt, I'd help this person out, right? It would would begin to change your life. So imagine that somebody inherits you $10 million. Would it change your life? It would, but only if you know about it. What if you didn't know about it? Would it change your life? No. So let me ask you this question. Is it possible for something to be true about you theologically, but not experienced practically? Is it possible that there are things that are true about you theologically in your identity, but that you have yet to experience? Like all of Paul's letters were written for that reason, okay? So it's possible. I wanna show you this morning what has been transferred into your account, so to speak. And the response to that is gonna be up to you. The blood of Jesus has purchased a new covenant reality a new covenant reality. Look look what Jesus says here in Luke 22. He says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. It's a new covenant. And notice when this meal is taking place, look back down at your Bibles, verse seven, it says, then, the day came, uh, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go make preparations for us to eat Passover. Okay, so something's happening. This is a monumental shift, and they're, 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 this, this meal is taking place on Passover. Now, most of you probably know the Passover story. Uh, it, the, uh, God was rescuing his people out of Egypt, remember? God says to his people, go kill a lamb, wipe the blood over your doorposts, and the, 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 the spirit of death will pass over you, and you'll be protected, right? So he's having this, he's saying there's a new covenant coming, oh, and it just so happens to be on the Passover, He's reinterpreting the meal. He's reinterpreting Passover, beginning a new covenant in which the sacrifice is not a lamb or a ram, but his own blood is to be wiped over you. And when that happens, with this blood, with this cup, God is beginning to relate to humans in an entirely new way. There's a new covenant reality for you to live in. It's his blood. His blood is so powerful. And when you enter this new covenant, there's three changes that are going to take place. I want to walk through each of these. The first change is this. You will get a banner over your entire life that says, washed, and you will have no guilt. Is that your reality? Turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, uh, to the right in your Bibles, Hebrews 9. We're going to spend just a little bit of time here. I want to do a little bit of a study in Hebrews 9. Now, the author of Hebrews is continually pointing to the old sacrificial system of Israel. And he's saying it was flawed for one primary reason. The reason why the sacrificial system of killing a lamb was flawed was that it didn't fully cleanse the conscience. So think of the sacrificial system in the Jewish law. There's Israelites coming to the temple with pigeons and bulls to be killed and to atone for their sins. And the problem that the author of Hebrews sees is that each of these animal sacrifices doesn't touch the conscience. It doesn't touch the mind. It doesn't touch the mood of the worshiper. And it's a problem, the author of Hebrews says, because it shows that sin is still having its effect emotionally, emotionally, emotionally. So the author begins to compare the blood of animals to that of Jesus. And in chapter nine, verse 11, he says this, but when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now here, already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood. So obtaining eternal redemption, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, It's the blood of Jesus that has, it's only his blood that has the real ability to cleanse you all the way down to even how you think about yourself, to even how you experience life on an emotional level. The author continues in chapter 10, flip over a page to chapter 10, verse one. Reflecting on the law again, he says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, think those, those animals, those animals' blood, the animals' blood, from, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and no longer felt guilty for their sins." but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, if the sacrifices of animals, if the blood of animals could deal with the blood of Abel, you would have have started to forget about sin. People would have never felt even guilty for sin if they were really effective. What What is being perfect here? It's forgetting about your sin. It's being more conscious in your mind of your righteousness because of the blood of Jesus than you are conscious of the sin because of the blood of animals. If they could really change your mood, they would have stopped being offered. But instead, what all attempts, and I know we don't have a sacrificial system in our, in our world today, but what any attempt to get out from under the guilt that we feel apart from Christ What any attempt does is it it doesn't deal with the blood of Abel still crying out. It doesn't deal with the guilt. It doesn't actually take it away. Verse 12, look down. But when this priest, speaking of Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made perfect holy. There was a sacrifice. It was Jesus. And he was such a complete sacrifice that you don't even need to worry about your sin anymore because he's made you perfect. Perfect? Me? Yeah, perfect. He has accomplished the goal. That's why he sat down. So much, you know, we wouldn't call it guilt, our drive at work or our desire to produce something beautiful or our need for a, for a nice house or a nice car or a beautiful life or the spouse or whatever. We wouldn't call that guilt working its way out. But if you ask the question, why enough, most of us do the things that we do in life because of guilt. Most of us pursue the things that we pursue in life because we actually feel a deep sense of guilt. Something isn't right with me. And if I could just have that, if I could just experience that, if I could just be seen that way, it would assuage this guilt. But the blood of Abel still says guilty. Christ's blood comes in and says, you don't even need to worry. Do you know how many things you would drop in your life? How many pursuits you would drop in your life if you really understood this passage? how many things you're going after, you're chasing after, you're purchasing, you're, you're, you're straining for, you would, you would begin to sit down because he sat down. You'd begin to rest. You're like, why am I so anxious? I, need, uh, yeah, I guess we just live in this age of anxiety. No, you live in an age that tells you it, there's a million ways to assuage your guilt and none of them will work. That's why you're anxious. I once heard somebody say that your attitude is the summary of your belief system. Your attitude is the summary of your belief system. It's one of the reasons why joy is actually one of our values. You're like, you can't have a value that tells me we have to have joy. Well, I don't know, read the Psalms. It tells you you have to have joy all the time. But what I'm saying is like, we have a value for joy because it reflects that the engine is working properly. It reflects that the heart is in a place of health. Joy is evidence that you've actually taken in the blood of Jesus, not on just a theological level, but an emotional an emotional level. I, had a, I used to know this old Christian man that would come visit the young adult ministry that I had, and he would say, what sort of skies do you live under? Do you live under friendly skies? What sort of skies do you live under? Let me just say this. If your ability to be forgiven, if this is your internal world, your ability to be forgiven is based on your ability to feel remorse, you will never live in triumph. You are not forgiven on your ability to feel remorse. You will, there's many Christians that they they live their life, they, they think I will only be free to the degree that I feel badly about my sin. When the blood of Jesus has made you perfect. Communion, you know what it does? When you come to the table, like we're going to do, it challenges you to look at your entire life through blood-tinted glasses. So it's illegal. Like what we're saying when we come to the table is we're saying, it's illegal for me to think about me apart from the blood. It is not legal theologically for me to conceptualize myself and how God feels about me apart from the blood. Look, you know, I remember when I realized this, that all of my sin in my life was in the future for Jesus. I had this time-bound way of thinking about it. All my sin was in the future for Jesus. So if he, so if he could cover it then, then no future sin could ever disqualify me. There's a banner over my entire life no matter what I do that says, this one's been washed. This one's been covered by the blood. And you will know, Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if you're here this morning and you're not free, you don't believe that, then you have yet to fully believe the truth. There's an opportunity to repent, to change your mind and to say, the blood covers all. He's made me perfect. I don't need to worry any longer. When you do that, here's the second change that's gonna happen in your life the self-assurance of a child and intimacy with God. Uh, look, look what the author continues. He goes right there. It's just awesome. In verse 19, he says this, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, you know what takes your confidence away? The internal guilt struggle. Am I actually worthy? Does he actually approve of me? I was just here this morning worshiping and you know what the enemy was saying? If, 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 if the people around you only knew, they would look at you raising your hands and think, who is he to do that? The voice of the enemy comes in and says, this is who you are. No, 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 the blood has covered me. So therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great, high, great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart And with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly. Don't swerve, don't drift to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. When you understand what the blood has done for you, do you know what the result is gonna be? It's gonna be joy, it's gonna be peace, it's also gonna be boldness. You're going to get bold with God because His blood set a standard for love, a standard for mercy. You know, I, I've shared this story before, but um, most mornings I'll go and I'll sit in this chair in our house and I'll and I'll open the Bible. I'll do a little reading. I'll do some listening. I'll sit in silence. And every morning, without fail, if my wife's home, she'll go get Georgie, my daughter bring Georgie out, and I can hear her little feet just like stomping her way over to the room. They're coming down, and right when she gets to the door, the door is literally like kicked open, bangs open, and she goes, Aah! And she runs, comes running, and I pick her up, and I'm like, the devotions are over. This is worship right now, Lord. I pick her up, and I, and I hold her. She knows her position within our home. Do you know your position within his home? One of the best parts of a child, it's the best part of having kids is so fun, guys. Uh, one of the best parts of a child is their inability to self-censor. <laughs> they can't self-censor. They don't assume the answer, they just ask. I want more of that, I want it now. It, it, it's just, they tell you how, you how they want it, when they want it, where they want it, all the time. <laughs> this is the relationship that we get with a good father. What you have to understand is that the blood of Jesus didn't deplete the resources of heaven. You weren't a drain on heaven. (laughs) The blood of Jesus became a mark, a standard by which all of God's love for the rest of time will be measured by. Here's what it says in uh, Romans chapter eight. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, that's the standard of blood. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You don't need to self-censor with God. When you understand the blood, it set the high watermark, the standard for what is available to me with God. The blood is, it's so intimate, it draws you. It says, come and ask anything you want. Come and say whatever you want. Come close. It's, it's so intimate, and this was the goal. Here's what Jesus says later on in, in John chapter six. He says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. This is an act of intimacy. It's like, have you ever read John 15, and you're like, abide in me, and I in you, and remain in him, and him in me, and you're like, okay, but how? How do I actually do that? The blood, the body. This is, a, this is an opportunity for remaining, for intimacy. It's a bold declaration each week that we come to the table that I'm favored enough when you eat that bread and you drink that wine that I'm favored enough that Jesus would give me, yes, even me, his blood so that I could be this close. It's it's an act of favor. Third thing that's gonna change in your life is this you're gonna begin to live a life of triumph because you have a source from another world, a life of triumph. You know, one of the most common critiques that I hear is a warning about overrealized eschatology. Have you ever heard that before? How many of you heard of that? O- overrealized eschatology. Okay. It's just a fancy way of saying this Be careful that you don't believe you're going to see more of heaven on earth than is reasonable. Don't overrealize the eschatology now, it's now and not yet. And the accusation that comes with that warning is this Life is difficult, so don't be so triumphant. I never wanna make light of pain. Um, Life has pain in it. Uh, I've been through some pain this past year like many of you have been through, I'm sure. But I am convicted that the blood means something. At the cross, Jesus inaugurated the kingdom and Jesus doesn't play like, too slow, Joe, (laughs) with us. He's not like, hey, the kingdom's at hand. Whoa, too slow, When Jesus said that the kingdom was at hand, he meant it. And what he meant was you should reach for it. See, earthly wisdom will always scorn those who believe too much, never too little. And there, I I do wanna say this. Our church, what we pursue on this particular issue, a life of triumph, the now part of the now and the not yet, There will be scorn for this. I feel it almost daily in the comments that are made, the emails that I get, what people say about this church. There will be scorn for this because the wisdom of man will always accuse those who believe too much, never too little. But we are the people who our focus is on what no eye has seen or ear perceived and what no heart has imagined. And so the scorn has to be set aside for the pursuit of extravagance because that is the standard that's been set by his blood. It's extravagant. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not give us all things? Many of you have heard that phrase, now and not yet, meaning that when the cross inaugurated heaven on earth, uh, it's now, right? But how many of you understand that the kingdom isn't here fully? So the kingdom of God is now, but it's also not yet. And I actually think that can be a really helpful phrase. I really do. I think that um, it can be a helpful phrase for us to understand, hey, there will be disappointment and pain in this life. The kingdom is not yet. And we do have a hope that's in heaven someday. But every person has a choice which part they emphasize. I've heard many that, and this has kind of been the, the, the mood of our church, the kingdom of, of heaven is now, and it's not yet. And I've heard, I've been a part of other communities where the, the kingdom of heaven is now, but it's not yet. <laughs> Don't get your hopes up or anything. Look, as a church, we have made a positional decision that we will not allow the lack of life to become more of our focus than where God's world is breaking into ours It may be now and not yet, but the focus is on the now. Why? Why have we made that decision? Because when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he set a life focus and the focus was heaven. He said, when you pray, pray on earth as it is in heaven. He gave us a focus. He gave us a direction to think. He gave us a direction to pray. We don't take earth and what we experience and the pain that we go through and make theological conclusions about that. We take what does the truth say? What is the spirit revealed? What does your blood mean? And we apply that here. That's our focus. That's what we look for. You know, many Christians, they don't pray for heaven because they don't believe the blood has made it possible. And so they answer the prayer for for God by never asking for beyond what's reasonable. We don't even ask for beyond what's reasonable because we make the assumption that just couldn't happen. That just couldn't happen. There have been a couple times um, where I've heard, and I'm sure even some of you are in the room, um, on a few different occasions recently, you know, it feels like every Sunday at Saints Hill is Easter. (laughs) And um, some of you are like, it feels like every Sunday's Easter. And then there's some that are like, it kind of feels like every Sunday's Easter. (laughs) Look, the church for 2,000 years has made the decision not to meet on Saturday but on Resurrection Sunday for a reason, for a statement about what our center is, what our focus is. It is on the resurrection. The blood changes everything. And this church, like you guys are a testament to that, full of faith, expectation without agenda. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That's been the cry of this church for four years. We will, like my conviction is, I wanna ask for all of heaven now. I don't wanna answer it for him and go, oh, well, he's probably not gonna do that, so I'm not gonna pray it. That's not how he told us to pray. He said, ask for heaven. I'm gonna leave it up to him, what he determines in his wisdom, what we can handle as a community, what we can handle as a church, what we could steward. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, about Jesus and the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, it's technical language for the demonic, the, the, the lowercase g, gods, the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. When Paul makes this declaration, our primary posture as believers becomes one of victory. It is, not, it is illegal for us to not live the victorious life, to not see through victorious lenses because we're seeing through the blood. The blood means something. And it's why we have victory. Here's what uh, John says in Revelation chapter 12. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed, disciples, you, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Why are you so triumphant in your theology? We're so triumphant because we believe the blood means something. We believe the blood has actually changed something. Like if you look at your life this morning, I think that this is kind of a wake up morning for many of us. If you look at your life and you see lack, You're like, I'm not experiencing what you're talking about. Some of you are. You're like, that's amazing. I agree. Amen. I've received that. I walk in that reality daily. But if you look at your life and you see lack, welcome to being human. Welcome to being human. But you now have a strategic decision to make. Will I apply the blood of Jesus even to that situation right there? Will I apply it to this difficulty right here? Will I apply it even to my hopelessness that I feel because of the years of of unanswered prayer? This is not a charismatic issue. This is a blood issue. We're a triumphant people because of the blood. So communion becomes an opportunity. What we're gonna do, it becomes an opportunity to place all of yourself under, under the blood, your family, your loved ones, your emotions, the entire world that you represent, you're bringing to the table. And you're saying, would the blood mean triumph here? would it mean victory here? You're bringing your whole self. Peter Kreeft in his uh, Catechism of the Catholic Faith, here's what he says. He says, nothing in our lives should remain outside the Eucharist. Nothing in your life should remain outside the Eucharist. And to be sure that we're getting you know, a spectrum of thought, I love this quote from Benny Johnson. Here's what she says. Each occasion of partaking is an opportunity to say, proclaim and confess again i lay hold of all the benefits of jesus christ full redemption for my life forgiveness wholeness strength health sufficiency when i take communion i am not only aligning myself back up with my true identity as a child of god i am also reminding the devil that he lost the devil must watch as i celebrate the resurrection power of jesus By this point in my sermon prep this week, I was on the floor just laughing. So it's good news. It's good news. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you or if you wanna stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store or visit our website.